Our guest this afternoon is Robert McGid OAM. Bob is the founder of TMG Developments, one of the country's most active and experienced property development groups with investments across the residential, commercial and hotel asset classes. Alongside his property interests, Bob is a media owner with high profile assets including Australian Jewish News and Property Weekly magazine. He is also a movie producer with his critically acclaimed Eyeless in Gaza documentary opening to strong and positive reviews in 2014. Bob is also a former director of the 10 Network, a former director of the Australia-Israel Chamber of Commerce and a highly regarded philanthropist with involvement across a number of causes. Bob, it's a, a privilege having you as part of our series. Thanks for your time. You studied postgraduate economics and have been involved in businesses of all different capacities for most of your working life. How would you evaluate the current market conditions at the moment? Well, I haven't been in the property market for quite a while. We did have a, a recent property in Darwin that we offloaded, offloaded rather cheaply because Darwin, when we went in about 15 years ago, um, was a rising market. The population was expanding quite rapidly and quite a few residential towers were being built. And we uh, had plans uh, for uh, two towers and a commercial center and a retail center. But uh, the market has changed radically in in Darwin, which is not the most <laughs> important part of the world, but, but that, that, that's the property we just sold. Um, more important than that is uh, Melbourne and Sydney. Uh, we have, we're also looking at uh, uh, possibly offloading a property in Mulgrave, um, or it's beginning to be called Monash nowadays. And, uh, uh, it's, it's very interesting to observe what is happening in the southeast of Melbourne. The considerable amount of, of uh, uh, rail track that is planned for the next 20, 30 years uh, from that area uh, over to, uh, to the airport and the, the ring road is, is, is going to be very important as well as some uh, light rail as well. You're the owner of three high-profile hotel assets via P1 Hotel, where we're sitting here today, Harbour Rocks Hotel as well, also in Sydney, and the Hotel Lindrum in Melbourne. Take me through how you're finding occupancy levels across your portfolio and how challenging was 2020 as a hotel owner? 2020 was a total disaster. Uh, I mean, we, we had no incoming tourists um, and we had border closures. So, so we couldn't have anyone coming from interstate as well as overseas. And uh, that, that is still continuing. The, the, the beauty of the situation in Australia is that we have almost no COVID. I mean, we've, we've survived miraculously during this period. But on the other hand, we've been very slow inoculating in, in fighting the virus. Whereas other countries started in December, we, we're only just beginning to start. And that is very difficult. We, once the border between New South Wales and Victoria opened up, things, th things improved considerably. 
but it will not be back to full tenancies until our international borders are open. And I would imagine that tens of millions of people, if not hundreds of millions of people, will be inoculated in the very near future. And if, they have, if there's a system like a green passport, which shows that you've, been, you've had your two shots, um, there's no reason that we shouldn't be allowing people to, who've been inoculated to come to Australia. There doesn't seem to be a government policy of telling us what they intend to do. So I think that that makes it very difficult for the tourism industry. Uh, and I think that a lot of people are having a difficult time. I mean, we, we fortunately are, are not doing that badly, better in Sydney than in Melbourne, but, uh, uh, but, but we're, it, it, it really is a difficult period. Now, you haven't necessarily acquired any new property assets for the last couple of years, but what's your reading on the economy in general? It depends what you mean by the economy. If you look at the Dow Jones Industrial Average, it seems to be very strong, regardless of everything else. When you think of the amount of money that's been poured into the system um, by, by Trump and now by, by Biden, um, it, it, it looks as though the economy will be buoyant for, for some time, particularly with interest rates which will be maintained very low. Um, so I, I would imagine the, the economies will be re relatively strong, uh, particularly once, once COVID is put behind us. Given your experience across global markets, particularly in Israel, the US and the UK, where do you think Australia sits from an international competitiveness perspective? I mean, the, the, the great concern for Australia is the relationship with China, because, uh, because the, uh, China's taken a very critical uh, and aggressive attitude to Australia, which, w which will force us to diversify our uh, economic activity and trade activity. But in the meantime, it is quite painful and, and d difficult, and difficult. although we seem to be surviving pretty well despite that. So you were born in Tsingtao in China to a fur trading and businessman father, Isidore, and also a doting mother and family matriarch, Ira, both of whom were also born in China. Talk to me about your parents. I believe our grandparents came from Siberia uh, mainly from Siberia, and uh, my parents were born in China, in, in Harbin, uh, and where they were forced to leave because of the Japanese. So we so transferred from Harbin to Shanghai, where they lived during the war. Uh, Dad was interned for a, br a brief period of time. Um, his business continued to be the fur fur business. Uh, some of the people, some of their friends from Harbin went to San Francisco and New York and they continued that relationship so there was, they were exporting to uh, related entities overseas. But then in 1949, the Chinese, the communists defeated the nationalist government. We had members of the nationalist army in our uh, apartment building. We had to move out of the building while they were retreating. Eventually, we were living in a communist country 
and had to escape, had to leave. So our choice was to go to Brazil or to Australia. And since they, my parents spoke English and we spoke English, uh, Australia was the obvious choice. So we arrived essentially as refugees in Australia. And what were your first impressions of Australia once you arrived here? The first impression was the cane and the second impression was a strap. <laughs> I arrived in Australia, went to Rosby Junior School and the teacher whips out a cane and starts caning my colleagues. And I'd never experienced something like this. We're mollycoddled in Shanghai in a Jewish school. And suddenly this thing comes. We arrived, moved to Melbourne, and the cane was replaced by a strap. And you, you know, you moved in your desk and whack. That was an impression of Australia. <laughs> Now, you studied mathematics at school and became interested in politics at an early age with particular interest in the Vietnam War, as I recall it. Talk me through what guided your passion in politics. Um, it actually w went from my academic studies. I was studying physics and mathematics. And so I was looking at uh, Einstein's special theory of relativity, which led to uh, atomic bomb, read a book by Robert Jung called Brighter Than a Thousand Suns, which was about the Manhattan Project, um, where America decided to create an atom bomb. And that led to Nagasaki and, and Hiroshima and people, lots of people dying. Um, but then, and so I joined the campaign for nuclear disarmament and became president of the campaign in Victoria. But then the Vietnam War took precedence because we were actually engaged in the war. And I thought that this was, it was a terrible war. Uh, and it was basically a civil war. And that's something I could argue till the cows come home. But, but uh, the Americans made a terrible mistake by supporting Diem, the president of the country. And a lot of people died over a decade, and I felt that that it was something that had to be opposed, and I was heavily involved in that. You then moved to the U.S. and studied postgraduate economics at New York Syracuse University. How did you find moving to the states, and and what guided the the interest in in economics? The reason for my going to the states and studying economics followed from the Vietnam War because I felt that as an Australian and being involved in the war in Vietnam, that, that I had to, in a way, atone for, for what, what we were doing. And I wanted to uh, a university that taught the economics of Southeast Asia. And Syracuse had a good uh, school, uh, Maxwell Graduate School, uh, which had a focus on Southeast Asia. So when I returned, I ended up with the Asian Development Bank work, working on development projects throughout Southeast Asia, which was in continuity with my ideological position. And what did you learn through that experience when you were working and living in the Philippines and, and the surrounding areas? I worked in, uh, in Taiwan, in, in India and Sri Lanka, in 
in Korea, and uh, there were endless experiences because it, it was essentially a Japanese bank. The World Bank was an American bank, and the Asian Wealth Bank was run by oh, the president was Takeshi Watanabe, a very distinguished gentleman. And on one of our missions, I was led by a man called Ohuchi. And uh, Ohuchi, I asked Ohuchi, how did you become operations manager in the Asian Development Bank? And he told me that since the 12th century, the Ohuchis have been servants of the Watanabes. <laughs> so Watanabe was there, so he had to follow the, his superior, his nobleman. Was, but there were a lot, of, a lot of stories, a lot of experiences that were amazing. I mean, one of the experiences was in a team consisting of a German and a, a, and a Japanese, and both of them were in the Navy during the Second World War. And there were a lot of discussions. The, the, German, the German's attitude after the war was, work, work, and more work. That was his response. Whereas the Japanese, uh, Takase, he uh, said the country was in a state of shock, and he went into a Buddhist monastery. And he, he was intending to remain a monk the rest of his life, but then eventually, after 18 months, decided to become an uh, agricultural engineer and uh, to, serve, to serve the world. So, yeah, so met some wonderful people. You then moved to Israel working for the government in trade and then later serving in the Israel Defence Force. What was like, life like in Israel in the 1970s and 1980s? It was horrendous <laughs> because I didn't speak a word of the language. <laughs> and, and trying to stumble and mutter my way through, through, and it took a long time before I got the hang of the language. So, so that, that made it difficult. Also, salaries were incredibly low. I mean, you could hardly put food on the table because I was working for the government. Initially, I worked for private enterprise, but then I worked for the government. And um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was difficult. And, but I, I was only in the army as a, what's called a Schlafbetnik, which is someone who came in at a, an older age as opposed to an 18-year-old. And um, so I was, I was only there for reserve duty for brief periods of time each year. Following your years in Israel, I think it was around about seven or so years, you then relocated to England where you lived for 10 years as a merchant banker working for S.G. Warburg in London. What prompted your interest in banking and what sort of deals were you working on? Um, survival was reason. <laughs> the fact that I got a job meant that I could, I could put food on the table. But uh, I was part of a country advisory team and we were advising the government of Ghana which was a very interesting exercise because uh, uh, Ghana was broke and they employed us, uh, a triumvirate of, of banks, uh, Warburgs, Kundo, Blayman Brothers and Lazard Frere, uh, who together acted as advisors to the government. 
and that was also a very interesting period which culminated with us preparing an inf information memorandum for the country to be presented to world, the World Banking community. And we were in New York finalizing our report when a note came over the Reuters which said there's been a coup, all of the government has been executed, don't go back. So that was the end of my Ghana experience. During this period, you also became involved in the design and manufacturing of toys, later selling your business to industry giant Hasbro. How did you become involved in the toy industry? Uh, again, I, I, after I left the bank, I ha had to find something to do. And I had a, I think, three-year-old child at the time. And we looked at toys, and that led to uh, the idea of a modular climbing toy, which uh, we had to patent. It took a long time to work out a way of connecting the tubes and connectors. So, so we have patents in, uh, we had patents in the company, which, which we sold off to, to Hasbro. So it was a very, very interesting exercise. I learned quite a lot about injection molding and marketing and international trade things like that. But uh, it, it was lucrative and we sold the business to Hasbro and then came to Australia. But in the meantime, I'd invested in, the, in the, the Australian market just before October the 19th, 1987, when the market crashed. And so all of my hard-earned earnings disappeared, or at least half of them disappeared. Uh, in that crash and had to work my way back up. And you did that, as I understand it, by acquiring a window manufacturing business from receivers. Yeah. Talk to me about, about that business and how you became involved. Uh, I was informed about the business uh, when it was still active and, and it was suggested that I invest in it, but I could see that there was something not, not quite right about it. And I came back uh, a few weeks later, spoke to the uh, owners, and after, they, after asking a few questions, uh, they still wanted me to invest, and I said, I suggest you go to the bank and tell them that you are broke, that you're, because otherwise you'll be trading insol insolvent. Uh, they did, they, they went to the bank. I bought into it, and I had no experience in the area, and it uh, it was uh, half the stuff had nicked off to the competitors, so it was quite a difficult chore trying to keep things going. But but again, one thing leads to another. So we moved from Girouin to Botany, and in Botany we we had a ware a warehouse. Uh, um, uh, of the, I think it was the Australian, uh, where they, they kept their paper. And it was quite a large area. And the architect, an architect was going to convert, was designing to convert it into residential apartments, about 220 residential apartments. And he offered it to us. 
So we bought it and we created Greenfield Gardens or something like that. Uh, and uh, it was, uh, that, that got me out of it. And then I sold the factory and I sold the business off and that got me into, pro into property. You started your property career in 1993, age 50, with the acquisition of the Esso office building on Sydney's Kent Street, which you converted into 217 residential apartments known as Highgate. Yeah. How did this opportunity come about and what was the vision that you saw for the project? The, what happened was that my father didn't have anyone in the family to continue his business. He'd built Fountaingate. So, so, so he decided to sell Fountaingate, which was his major asset. He developed a lot of residential apartments in Brandon Park, Park Shopping Centre, but Fountaingate was the main thing. And so he decided to sell it. He sold it to the Transport Accident Corporation, TAC. So he, so he was cashed up. So I thought, if it was my money, what would I do? This was during the recession, when there are office buildings empty throughout this is uh, in 93, um, office buildings uh, empty throughout uh, Australia. So I looked, looked at the various, I thought this would be a time to find an empty office building which had great views and could be converted to residential. So we looked all around Circular Quay and none of them were suitable. And then the agent said, what about Esso, the Esso building up on the hill. I thought, oh, that's too far. And we went there, and wherever, in every direction you looked at fabulous views. Everything from the Opera House to, to the bridge to North Sydney to all the way to Botany, whichever way you looked, there were great views. We outbid Mervac and, and bought the building, added, added eight storeys and converted to residential, and just flew, flew, flew out. We did very well out of it. And then in circa 1995, you acquired the leasehold of the Manly Wharf in Sydney from the mortgagee for I think it was around seven million or thereabouts. Take me through this acquisition. As I understand, it was an underperforming asset and, and you saw a, a potential for a greater use. So talk me through it. How did it come about? It was owned by the Hafen Group and they entered into an agreement in 1992 with the MSB or Waterways, whatever it was, they keep on changing the names. But um, they over-invested in it, enormously over-invested in it. They also had uh, Dowling Harbour, they developed that, and they went broke. They, it, it ended up in the, in the hands of the banks. So we, we, we bought it and it was trading appallingly. So, and, and also the agreement with the government was, was terrible. No, no one could survive on it. So we did a deal with the government whereby we negotiated fairer uh, uh, rents to be paid uh, on the grounds that we would invest a considerable amount of money to rehabilitate it. It was designed like a shopping centre, an enclosed walkway with shops on either side, with its banks to the fabulous views that it has. So we smashed the walls down, turned, turned it all outwards rather than inwards, 
and and it took off. Yeah, so we we had restaurants and pubs and and uh, lots of the, the walkway and six million people walk through there every year. So it it was bound to succeed. The only thing is it was designed. It just had to be turned around. And then around about the same time, you were offered a 17-year lease for a second wharf in Sydney, on this occasion in Walsh Bay, next to the Harbour Bridge. How did this come about? Pier 1 came as a friend, a, friend, a friend of mine, or someone who became a friend of mine, um, had an option on, the, on the, the site. He was paying every month a fee to hold the option. It was, it was basically derelict. The option was held by someone who uh, was planning to put a backpackers there. Well, certainly too good a site for backpackers. And so we, were, I exercised the option with my friends and we built a hotel. So the hotel opened up and initially it was uh, it was trading very poorly. So we had to drop the rates considerably to, and gradually built up the, the clientele and uh, continually improve the hotel, converting space that was that were owned by restaurateurs at the end, uh, buying them out, converting them to, to either conference facilities or to additional rooms. So, so we moved from, from 160 rooms to 189 rooms. One of the most fabulous hotels in the world. Let's now explore some of the other notable deals you've been involved in. In 2008, you purchased the Hotel Lindrum and the Harbour Rocks Hotel from Seabus Property for around 35 mil. What attracted you to these assets? Uh, I was not interested in having a portfolio of hotels. I was only interested in hotels that were interesting. You know, so invariably they're heritage, invariably they, they have features that are, that are outstanding. And, um, and both of these hotels fit to that category, as opposed to most other hotels, which are blocks, concrete blocks, you know, just unopenable windows and nothing to recommend them aesthetically. So I thought these two would fit, fit in well with the Pier 1. And what do you like about owning hotels? Now's a bad time to ask me. <laughs> Probably if you asked me a year, year ago, I would have told you how wonderful it is. <laughs> You, uh, you sold a 600-unit site in Rosebury in 2013 for around $75 million. How did you come to own this asset and, and why didn't you want to develop it? Why did you sell it? That was one of the assets I inherited from my father, which was Corporate Express um, warehouses. So it was a, a large warehouse uh, with a bit of land around it, uh, quite a large block. And so, so when they left, I thought there's an opportunity to convert this to residential. We'd already been in residential with Highgate and, and other projects. So I thought that this had enormous potential. But it, it was a very large job and it had contamination to be worried about. I thought 
that if I can get a good price and, and sell it to a, a, a builder who would be able to maximize, uh, maximize on it. Uh, uh, additionally, it would take years to, to be involved in it. I thought there probably are alternative uses that, that w would be completed in a shorter period of time and, and would be more effective. You did mention it in your opening, but in 2015 you sold the Cairns Pullman Hotel for 75 million. What was the reasoning behind selling this asset and what are your thoughts on the Cairns market? As far as the Cairns market is concerned, I feel sorry for anyone who had to endure uh, the, the Queensland government's closures. I mean, it, they're shooting themselves in the foot. I mean, tourism is such an important industry for Queensland, and, and to keep people out of the state was was horrific. I mean, was, there are ways of controlling the um, the pandemic, but uh, just by closing borders and saying I'm a Queenslander is is, is a terrible uh, uh, terrible for the, the, the entrepreneurs, you know, restaurateurs, hoteliers, and others. I presume now they're playing catch-up and I think that, that uh, a lot of people are now going to Queensland even though it's past the main season which they've lost uh, the summer season, uh, Melbourne coming and going into Queensland. But the hotel wasn't a success for us. It, it, it was a question of price. We, we overpaid for it, we sold it and we're happy to get out. The Chinatown Darwin project was a 5,600 square metre landmark development site. How did it come into your ownership and what happened in the end? My project manager introduced me to two Darwinian Chinese people who, who won a tender by proposing that a Chinatown be built in Darwin. Now Darwin was largely developed and, and populated by Chinese and there was a flourishing Chinatown uh, in Darwin, which was destroyed either by fire or by bombing, Japanese bombing. Um, so their idea was to create a new Chinatown, which since I was Chinese, I thought I'd be interested in, in getting involved in it. Thought fate had found me. <laughs> fate, fate had found me, but the wrong way. <laughs> So what was happening, so we designed a Chinatown which was, consisted of multi-storey uh, uh, residential towers, hotels, shops, pub. It was, it was a great de development at a time when Darwin was buoyant and a lot of people were moving up from the south uh, to work in government in, in Darwin. But the tables turned. And Darwin's, Darwin has been stagnant for a long period of time. There was no opportunity for us to develop it. So, so the best thing was to off offload it because it, it just was on our, our mind and it just hang out there waiting for the opportunity just wasn't going to happen. We had better, better, better opportunities. You're also the owner of the immensely popular Burley Pavilion on the Gold Coast. How did you get involved in that? I, I'm, I was in a partnership with Manly Wharf Hotel, um, which is in Manly Wharf, obviously, 
and my partner is a brilliant hotelier and Ben May and he he came to me with his proposition in Burley Heads now I didn't know Burley Heads at all but I trusted him and thought that if anyone could could do a great job with it he turned it around he, he must be the best lo location in all of Australia I mean it's just a it's right on the beach, it's in such a popular area, it's a growing area. He, he's designed it fabulously. It, it, through, throughout the uh, pandemic, it's been as, as utilized as possible within the constraints of, of the law. So, so we're very lucky to be a partner there. In 2007, you established Polaris Media, which, as I mentioned in the opening, owned Australian Jewish News and Property Weekly magazine. Let's start with Australian Jewish News. Why did you want to own that? I uh, subscribed to the paper and I didn't like the editorial policy. I, 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 I didn't think that the way they're presenting, particularly Israel, uh, was correct. I think that they had a uh, sub-editor, international sub-editor was an Israeli who was behaving as though he was in Israel. When you're in a country, you can criticize it non-stop. When you leave the country, you, you know, it's, it's not appropriate to criticize, criticize your country. I don't think it's appropriate. And every article that he wrote was, was critical uh, and saw everything in a negative light. So I complained to the, uh, to the owners and they said, we believe in editorial freedom. Uh, and I said, but you know, you don't have to do it this way. Anyway, finally got sick of me and they put it on the market and I thought, put my money where my mouth is and uh, bought it. Got rid of him straight away. <laughs> and everything's been running smoothly since then. In, in terms of owning a media asset, how difficult is it to run it in a profitable manner? I mean, I, I think you've been vocal about the need to have paywalls in the past, which all media organisations now have. So how do you run a profitable media business? You don't. <laughs> what, you, what you do is you try not to lose money. <laughs> I mean, I think we're the only printed Jewish newspaper in the world. All of them have gone, gone to electronic. It's a choice that you have to make. By, we will lose a lot of readership. Will be and also ran if we if we drop the printed page. So we we would rather continue, and and publish, uh, and and make it available to uh, probably an older demographic. But, um, but one that, is, that can't do without their paper. And I, I, get, I get a newspaper at home, any one of my children or grandchildren think I'm insane, that my wife and I are crazy. Who reads the newspaper? Well, we read the newspaper. <laughs> yeah. You were previously a director, as I mentioned, of the Australia-Israel Chamber of Commerce. How would you evaluate the relations between both countries, Australia and Israel, 
today? I think that there is so much opportunity there. I mean, there's so much compatibility because, because we're both small countries, small in terms of population relative to China, India, United States, etc. But we both are in dangerous waters. So I mean, compare us with China, compare Israel with, with, with its neighbors. So, so we, from a military, from a defense point of view, strategic point of view, we have a lot that we should be sharing with each other. You know, Israel is very advanced in high tech, and and Australia has a lot to contribute. I think that there's there's a lot of a, a big future in collaboration between the two countries. You've had an extensive career in property development previously. What are the secrets to becoming a successful property developer? First of all, knowledge. Knowledge comes from talking to, talking, befriending relations with, with uh, real estate agents. Focus on an area, or start by focusing on an area. Eventually, if you expand, you can expand further, but fo focus on an area you know. Get to know the agents in that area get to have an understanding of what people want, of what prices they were ready to pay. So that, that's, that's the fir first part. Second part is to understand the economics of construction. And here you either do a course at tech or university, but learn, learn ab about how things are put together, uh, ha learn how to draw up contracts, those are, those are the basic in ingredients on the cost side and on the revenue side. Then marketing, but the agents will, will help, will help with the marketing. And, um, and, uh, but you need some uh, uh, inventiveness. You need design, choosing the right architects. All of that, all of that is common sense, but anyone could do it. What are the key ingredients to running a successful hotel? Cho choosing the right management. I mean, in my case, a heavy amount of involvement. So I, I do get involved in all, all the hotels. We watch daily um, what's happening at the hotels. There's always a lot of additional expenditure that's required, and you have to, you have to be on top of that. But also very good relations with, with the, the manager who's running the hotel. We have wonderful relationships where, you know, not only with the manager, but, but the staff and everyone in the hotel. What are the biggest lessons that you've learned over your career? I don't know whether I've learned any lessons. I keep on making mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> what about advice? Would you have any pieces of advice that you could pass on? Don't jump in feet first go in step by step, L learn as much of what you want to get into before you start getting involved. Hum human relationships are extremely important. Develop contacts with people in, in the field that you want to enter into. You know, be genuine in, in your relationships with them because that's where you learn. You learn by talking to people. And, and you develop relationships, partnerships, um, other activities. 
you know, with professional people and everyone else. But I guess that's it. You're also heavily involved in philanthropy. Why is philanthropy and, and charity so important to you? I, I think you have to give back to, to the community. There, there are so many needy causes and so many important developments um, that, that need, need funding. You know, th th that goes for, for charitable courses of pe people who, uh, such as fostering children, things of that nature, indigenous, uh, in indigenous communities, as well as academic uh, university uh, courses and areas of activity that are really important. There, there's so much to, to give to it. It's a question of deciding what the priorities are. My final question is, you're also involved in several other industries including battery technology, nanotechnology and medicinal cannabis. Which sectors do you see as offering the greatest growth in future? Well, well the, the one that, that interests me most that I, I've gotten involved, well, two, two areas. One is quantum, the quantum which is the future. So quantum computing, uh, is is an area that fascinates me. I find it very difficult to understand. And the other is genomics. So we're involved with the Garvin Institute and uh, the work that they're doing. I mean, we're learning about the body so rapidly, so much. Um, and the Garvin's doing an excellent job. Robert McGeard, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity.